there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people about what they do, how they do it, how they hang in there. Today, my guest is an author, Manuel Betancourt. He is the author of The Male Gazed on Hunks, Heartthrobs, and What Pop Culture Taught Me About Desiring Men, right? Anything with hunks and heartthrobs, I'm in. He's also written for uh, different outlets like the New York Times and Vulture, and he's just very smart and interesting and has fun takes on things that I'm obsessed with, like should gay actors play straight people or vice versa or whatever that is, uh, which I seem to change my mind on every day. So we also talk about Mario Lopez in a wrestling singlet, Antonio Banderas in Tidy Whitey, so you get the idea. Before we get to the interview, though, I want to remind you that this podcast is brought to you by Swiffer. No, it's not. It's not. I don't have any sponsors. It's just me. It's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Yeah, I just do it. Uh, but I love it. And if you want to help support it and help me cover my expenses, there are two ways you can do that. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and uh, donate to my virtual tip jar. Or I would love it if you became a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the Derek and Romaine banner, and for a monthly subscription fee, you get my show early, and you get all these other great shows, too, so you can learn about that at dnrstudios.com. Also, I want to remind you, I always forget this, I have a voicemail, so if you want to leave a comment or a question or something about the podcast on this voicemail, I may play it on the show, and that number is 1-888-647-9653. Isn't that cool? All right. Yeah, just chime in and say, hey, I just wanted to make, how about this? This would be the ultimate message. Hey, I just wanted to let you know that your voicemail works. I mean, like, that would be a nice proof of concept kind of moment. I just need to know that it works, um, that it's there. It's there for us if we need it. one 647 9653 All right. Now it's time for the interview with Manuel Betancourt. Joining me now via Zoom from Hollywood, it's the author Manuel Betancourt. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Uh, Your book is The Male Gazed on Hunks, Heartthrobs, and What Pop Culture Taught Me About Desiring Men. And desiring is in parentheses, like about men but desiring them. Um, (laughs) I love it. It's I I am younger, or you're younger than me, so I the touchstones aren't the same, but I they echoed with like Instead of Mario Lopez, I would like, you know, Gregory Harrison, whoever it was. Although <laughs> I am really, I, I have questions about Mario Lopez. I love him. So we'll get to that in a bit. But um, how would you describe the book to somebody that knew nothing about it? Sure. So the book is, I think my publisher describes it as a memoir in essays, which is sort of appropriate. Right. Um, uh, I think of it as a book of cultural criticism about masculinity and desire that's filtered through my own personal experience. Uh, and so the central question of the book is, do I want him or do I want to be him? And sort of, it's a question that sort of, uh, is the narrative and theoretical engine of essays on Disney films, on Saved by the Bell, on Pedro Almodovar films, on Walter Mercado, on Ricky Martin. And sort of, it's a little bit of me unpacking what it is that movies and TV shows and musicians and artists and pop culture, what is it that they're teaching young men, specifically young queer men? Uh, and yeah, it's very sort of like cultural and context specific. So I, these are mostly like nineties and early two thousands cultural touchstones for me. Sure. Now you grew up in Colombia, but your diet in terms of TV and stuff was pretty American. Is that right? That would be correct. Yeah. So I was, I was born and raised in, in Colombia and I, 
went to a bright, uh, British private school. And so that meant that I was learning English since I was like four or five. And you get, when you're in the rest of the world, you get Hollywood exports, a lot of stuff. Sure. And so, um, there wasn't, I mean, Columbia has a relatively robust, um, entertainment industry, but nowhere near Hollywood. So it meant that, um, to fill in slots and to fill in sort of like prime time and daytime sure. TV, they were often showing, um, dubbed and subtitled stuff. But I was watching, yeah, I was watching everything from like, Seinfeld and Mad About You and The Nanny and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Al- Alias like because that's what they played and I watched it dubbed or uh, subtitled in like the cable channels and it was pretty American. <laughs> now were your friends in Colombia watching the same stuff or were you kind of like you guys got to get with this Buffy thing I don't know what you're doing with this stuff but like were they watching the same things? I mean my friends were. <laughs> yeah the cool people were the cool people were. <laughs> I don't know if they would call it cool, but um, I, I did have friends that like watched Buffy and Alias and we talked about Gilmore Girls. Uh, but I also had friends who like didn't really watch any of that and just watched telenovelas, which I also somehow and probably also found time to watch. So I had a very, you know, when I think of what I was watching as a teenager, I was watching American TV. I was watching Colombian TV. I was watching Mexican telenovelas. I was watching Japanese anime. I was watching Spanish game shows, Italian music channels. Like my cable box was this like weird global mix of things. Um, and I think that was particularly unique to my household. <laughs> Do you have a sense of how telenovelas in Latin America are different than American soap operas? Are they sexier? Do they show more skin? Are they, is there a difference or are they kind of very similar? I mean, the main difference is that telenovelas in Latin America are primetime. Right on. And so that means that they have a kind of cultural impact that primetime sitcoms or primetime dramas have in the U.S. Um, so here in the U.S., like, what I understand is like soap operas are sort of like daytime and therefore lesser and right. it's sort of like for housewives or for people who are staying at home or kids who are sick from school. Um, <laughs> right. Cause when you're at, sick from school, it's all about the game shows and the soap operas. Exactly. Whereas in, in Columbia, like everyone watches telenovelas cause that's what's on at 7 PM and at 8 PM and at 9 PM and at 10 PM. Um, and they are sexier and they are, um, I think also a little bit, but then I, I haven't really watched that, that many American soap operas, but I have this sense that they're sort of outlandish. Yeah. Right. And there is that too in a lot of telenovelas, but Colombian telenovelas in particular are really grounded. Um, and that meant that they were, they were like tackling like serious subjects and were sort of, um, set in like fashion industries or the coffee industry. And they were sort of like very much like reflecting the worldview. Um, and I think that's what sets them apart from soaps here, right. both their cultural cachet, but also the kind of work that they were doing. Cause they, again, they were like more comparable to sort of like an Ally McBeal or like a desperate housewives, like that kind of primetime yeah. sort of world. They were the water cooler or, shows that people would talk exactly. about. Yeah. At school. That's what everyone talked about. Yeah. Um, your subtitle is on hunks, heartthrobs and what pop culture taught me about desiring men. What's the difference between a hunk and a heartthrob? I have a take on this, but I want to hear yours first. Mm-hmm. It's, I, it's funny because I think of them as, um, they are intertwined, but there is a difference. And to me, 
the difference is I think the hunk is kind of like a himbo. Like the hunk has this sense of like they're ditzy and they're not really that smart. And whereas a heartthrob is really about this like lustful kind of man that you, that is sort of everyone is sort of swooning over. Um, but I think the difference would be that I wouldn't expect much talking from a hunk. <laughs> wouldn't say, yeah, exactly. Also, a hunk, you have to have muscles to be a hunk. You don't have to have muscles to be a heartthrob. You could be like That's a true. Sean Cassidy, Willowy. That's a very dated reference. You're probably like... Or a birdie. Know. Thank if you. If really want to also go to a yes. different kind of dated reference, which I'm also well-versed yes. in. So. <laughs> yes, so your hunks always have to have muscles. And I've often wondered what it would be like to be a hunk. What would it be like? I had somebody recently on the podcast who is undeniably a hunk. And I wanted to come out and ask them, what's it like to be a hunk? And I just didn't want to say that question, but it's what I wanted to know. So I kind of got at it in a different way and it, I didn't really, I didn't really land the plane, but I always wondered what it would be like to be a hunk. It feels like kind of hot to have all those eyes on you. You're also powerful. Do well, people I, not take you seriously? Yeah, but boo hoo. It's worth it well, to look like that. This is why I love, there's a 30 Rock, 30 Rock episode about the bubble the like pretty bubble and it's with yeah, John yeah, Hamm yeah. as the guest star. And it's like, he moves to the world, not knowing that people are treating him differently because for sure. It was so well and I, I have to imagine, I have to imagine that's how hunks yeah. <laughs> sort of move to the world. Also like uh, oblivious to the fact that their, their hunkness is affecting sort of the ripple of reality around them. Right. You have a chapter about Ricky Martin and his thirst mm-hmm. trappiness and just all things Ricky. I love Ricky. Oh shoot. I had a t-shirt I could have worn. I went, saw him last year in concert. Um, mm. I love him, but I'm also fascinated with his thirst traps because with some people you feel like it's just marketing and it's their their people are telling them to do it or they do it, the team. Ricky's doing it. It feels like he's doing it. He gets off on it. He gets off on his own beauty. He, like, it's his thing. What, you? I think I would, but it's curious, right? It is. What do you think of Ricky's thirst trappiness? I mean, this is this is why I basically wanted to write an entire chapter because I, I was so thrilled to see it. I, I, you know, as someone who, you know, as I say in the book, like I, he, my entire life, he's been a superstar. Like he joined Menudo the year right. I was born. So I've never known a world in which Ricky Martin is not a household name. Yeah. Um, and so I saw him as a teeny bopper, as a heartthrob, as a telenovela star. Uh, and then eventually as this like, the hip swing, sort of living la vida loca. Leather pants. Leather pants. And then, you know, he came out and then he got married. Uh, But when I started seeing him on Instagram posting these, these pictures, I was like, what is, what is happening? And I I, I did, I did think there was something because they don't particularly feel posed. They don't, I mean, some of them do, but there's clearly, I mean, just recently there was, he was like on an airplane and he took a picture basically from the bottom of the seat. So we had this like, Bird, like where we were looking up at him, like we could have been between his, his legs if, yes. if we happened to be in that plane. And it has to be, you know, like he knows what he's doing, right? right. And I love that because it it gave him a kind of agency that we don't often uh, value or privilege or really care to think too deeply because we tend to think of it as like, well, they're narcissistic or they're like self-involved and there may be that. But also as someone who posts kind of thirst traps, I'm like, I think there's always layers that like, it's about you, but it's also about who you're trying to lure, who you're trying to get, you know, feedback from. Um, and to see someone of Ricky's 
stature. Yeah, also who doesn't need to do, he doesn't need he to doesn't do it. To. <laughs> he doesn't need to do it. It's not a marketing thing. It, 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 sometimes you feel like, oh, he just needs a hit of whatever this is giving him. Exactly. And that's okay. Stars, they're just like us. They're just like us. I think thirst traps generally are interesting. First of all, I didn't love the term thirst trap. Thirst I mm-hmm. get. I love thirst, but I wasn't crazy about trap. But I've, I've come to embrace it. I don't know if you have any thoughts on the term itself, but I've made peace with it. Mm-hmm. But, but it's curious who you know in the world who are thirst trappy and who isn't. Like, oh, that's my real estate guy. Oh, my God, there he is in a Speedo. <laughs> like, and he's super thirst trappy. Like, it's a daily thing. And then they get burned out on it or whatever. But it's just curious right. who is into that because it's not yeah. always about marketing. Sometimes if they're trainers or whatever, you feel like they're trying to build something. But a lot of times right. it's just about, um, you know, showing the world what's going on. Yeah, or getting a dopamine hit or, yeah. you know, wanting to sort of um, entrap. I think this is why the trap is yes. interesting to me because I do think there is a sense of like you can still – I think there's a version – of a picture you could take of yourself that's showing off, but that is not a thirst trap. Right. Because I think that the thirst, the trap is the entrapment is, is, is an added uh, sort of thing that it requires a kind that you're kind of luring or you're fishing. Who's who's getting trapped, the viewer or the poser? The viewer. Both Both are getting (laughs) trapped in the thirst trap. The classic accidental thirst trap was, look, I'm with the dolphins. Like, I'm swimming with dolphins, right? Mm-hmm. That was the classic. I'm just, look at, you know, but boy, you, just know, you, to be you, know, you know I'm sucking in those abs, right? With <laughs> flipper or whatever it is. Yeah. Like, there's the accidental thirst traps. Um, yeah, it's very interesting. And I don't know that if I even felt that way about my body, if I would be drawn to it, which is neither here nor there. I just don't know what it is about some people, the guy that works at the restaurant down the street, it's like a full-on hobby. Like, and, uh-huh. and I don't mind it. I'm not mad at it. What do you think of the idea that in the era of social media, we're exposed to so many more bodies than I mean, we used to see? This is, and also we live in Los Angeles, which I yeah. think adds to sort of like a, an added layer because we're also then seeing like walking and talking social media profiles, like in a way that I think you can't really find in many other cities in the U S or the world. Yeah. Um, I do think it's a little, it's a little crippling. Sometimes I find that there are days and there are weeks when I need to like set it down. Cause I was like, this is just, I enjoy all of this. These are all very pretty men, but like, I, I can't then look at myself and then I'm like, I don't want to be feeling like that. Right. (laughs) I don't like the way this makes me feel. I really tried to make a deal with myself in the last, I don't know, five or 10 years to just be okay with my body in whatever state it's in at any given moment. And, you know, work to improve here and there, do whatever, but never be like down on it. Cause you know, it's getting me where I need to go. It's all right. Like, yeah. And I think what I then remember and remind myself was like, Oh, they're not really posting that for me. They're posting that for themselves. So I can just scroll past like, If they're feeling great, that's great. That's not, yeah. that shouldn't be a value judgment on me or yeah. my gym routine or my diet or my, the fact that I have this or not that or that I'm not feeling great. You shouldn't have had um, those cookies last night during the Barbie movie. Like what I mean, the I fuck made, were you thinking? I <laughs> bake a lot. So yes. <laughs> sometimes people are like, oh, grocery shopping. I was like, no, I'm the kind of person who was like, yesterday I wanted cookies. So I made cookies at home by myself for me. Yeah. And then I'm like, why should I do that? And I was like, I 
I, it's just, I enjoy the pleasure, but I do think it requires an extra step of being like really cognizant of that and being like, Oh, I need to be okay with myself. And that needs to happen whether I'm being exposed to all these other bodies or whether I'm by myself in the apartment. And like, as soon as you start tying yourself or your judgment or your value or your worth. Um, but it's hard because it's, I, I think sometimes we are, and this is sort of what the book also establishes. Like we are bombarded with so many images of what we're told are valuable, good, worthy, admirable, um, bodies and body like male bodies. And it's sort of hard to then parse and say like, all bodies are beach bodies, all bodies. Like, right. It's like, and it, the are fact they, that it requires that. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's, there's almost so many beautiful right. bodies that it's almost like wallpaper. Now it almost, they almost cancel each other out in a weird way. Um, but they're white noise, you mean? Kind of, in a way, like, oh yeah. And then I'm always curious, like you'll you'll follow somebody online and they'll just be gorgeous, living their best life, perfect body, perfect body. And then there'll be like this square where they're like, I'm having to take a break. I'm de-. Like they'll really spill their guts about whatever they're going through depression wise or whatever. And it's always like, it's always like a record scratch moment. And I, you know, I feel for them, but it's like such a change of pace from their normal um, feed. Yeah, there's this... Um the show on HBO called How To with John Wilson. And yeah. there's an episode this season where he finds himself at like a bodybuilding meet. Yeah. And so you have all these like beautiful men who are like, clearly all they do is spend time chiseling their bodies and they're posing. And in between their interviews, they're like, yeah, like I feel really good. I feel like that went really well. Also, I have a lot of thoughts of depression and I really wonder like whether I should really be doing this. And it's really taking a toll on my mental health. But I, but I think that went, I think that went really, really well, right? Maybe I should quit. Maybe this is not really the thing. And like you see them do that in like a 30 second clip and you're just like, Oh, right. Like that can be its own kind of crippling. Yeah. For them, let alone for those of us who are just like scrolling through. Yeah. I will say this. There's one porny guy that I follow named Matthew Camp and, well, um, yes. And and who wouldn't? Why wouldn't you? But uh, we, recently he had he had a caption that said something to this effect. I think I'm paraphrasing. Just wanted to pop on and remind you all how jacked I am. And I was like, I appreciated the honesty because a lot of times they're like, serenity is that time of day when you need it. Like they're trying to be new agey, and they're really just like, just wanted to pop on and just remind you. My, <laughs> I'm hot. I'm hot. Just just FYI. Just, just wanted to remind you. Um, Mario Lopez, you write about him in Saved by the Bell. Talk a little bit about that chapter and what, what made you want to write about that. Yeah. So I, I knew that I wanted, you know, when I started mapping out the book, I was like, well, there was like these touchstone things. And so the first chapter is about Disney because I was like, that's what I grew up with. And then I wanted to write about American sitcoms because they're the other main sort of thing that I was part of my pop culture diet. And, you know, because I decided to write this book about masculinity, I was like, well, I have to write about AC Slater because he was like the first hunk that I saw on my television screen. And because, you know, my school didn't have wrestling and we didn't, like my school has soccer and right. soccer and basketball. And like, there was like very basic, no, we didn't have a swimming pool. So there's no swim meets. Um, and so every time I saw Slater in his wrestling singlet was this like mo- eye opening. I was like, I couldn't believe that they would allow this like on a Saturday morning family sitcom. You would lose your um, mind. 
I would lose my mind. And then I loved that. And when I was revisiting and I was like, oh my God, every single wrestling episode or episode that focused on wrestling focused on gender norms. So it was all about like how he needed to be a man or how there was going to be a girl wrestler. So what did this mean for wrestling? Or like he had to join the cooking club. Like there were all, all the episodes that, search, that were around wrestling were about this anxiety about being how to be a man and how to be a good man and how to be a manly man. Uh, so I was like, oh, this is perfect. And, you know, it helped that Mario Lopez is another like Latin figure, which I wanted to really showcase throughout the book because I didn't want it to feel like just Hollywood or like just right. white um, sort of body. So that really helped. And the fact that he had this, that the reason Slater is a wrestler is because he was a wrestler. Like, like originally he was, Slater was supposed to be this Italian American, John Travolta like figure. Um, and it was, and it wasn't until they cast him that they realized like, oh, he could bring all these things. So the fact that he was a wrestler became a central part of his character. So Mario um, was a wrestler in real life. Oh yeah. Yes. I and have a shallow a question. This. I have a shallow mm-hmm. question, but it's pertinent. Okay. I did not watch Say by the Bell. I was older than, uh, that sort of era. How was the basket in the singlet? It's, it's pretty good. It's, it's pretty good. Okay, cool. It doesn't look like they were doing anything to try to tamp it down or anything like that they weren't playing it safe okay yeah yeah and yeah and then since i think his son now also is an is a wrestler because he's posted again when i was when i was doing research this is very um important research for the book i was like combing through his social media and i think like his son is a wrestler and so i think he like posted some pictures with him um also he's like really kept up like if you see mario oh yeah i follow him he yeah, works out, he does boxing, he does all this stuff. I was all about his Dancing with the Stars journey. Yeah. I went to Broadway and I was going to see him in a chorus line. A chorus and line, I yeah. got that notice in the program that it was the understudy. And I was so <laughs> fucking furious. I was like devastated that I wasn't going to get to see Mario Lopez. And here's my thought about Mario Lopez and his being on this planet. Like God built him and he was like, you know what? This is pretty awesome. I could stop here, but I'm I'm also, you know what? Dimples. Mm-hmm. And and his assistant was like, you know what? That's just too much. It's gonna be too much for people to take. And he's like, no, <laughs> I, I think I think dimples. I feel dimples. And then yeah. he sent him on his way. And I also yeah. like his pivot to hosting. He's like, you know what? I did the Nick yeah. Tuck shower scene. I can be on the access or oh ET God. or whatever it is. Yeah. And I'm, I'm it's a smart move. It was. It is. Oh, that Nick Tuck scene. Lives rent free in my mind. It's totally never, not a lot of <laughs> Speaking of premium TV, this is not uh, in your book, but I think you might have a take as a as a culture writer. And just like that, thoughts? Mm. I am a Sex and the City, I wouldn't say agnostic, but it was like... It, you can it, take or leave it. It. Pa- it passed me by. Like right. my friends in college were obsessed with it. They had like, back when we had DVDs and like right. my friends had, had them all and they like, they would watch them and rewatch them. And the final season was airing and they were all like getting together. And I was just like, I, cause again, cause when I grew up, I didn't have HBO. Right. So oh, it was like, I didn't, I didn't really have access to Sopranos, like all that stuff. So I watched maybe like the first or two episodes of Angels like that the last season, right? like the first season. And yeah, no. I will say I do still stand by the first movie. I really enjoyed the first movie. I thought the first movie was great. I have a it's very fantastic. fond memory of seeing it with friends, and it meant everything to us. I'm sure I cried. Um, and just like that, I watch it. It's I'm like, every time it ends, I'm like, that's the weirdest show. There's a few episodes <laughs> where it feels like AI wrote it, and then once in a while, they will nail something, and you're like, that! There was this great scene with Seema and Carrie where mm-hmm. Seema kind of talked about 
like I'm single, I'm okay with it, but I don't need to be your third wheel. Like it was really wise and like um, thoughtful about friendship. And I was like, yes, I'm into that. Um, have you seen Red, White, and Royal Blue? No, it's the, on my list. It's uh, the gay Amazon movie. Uh, I watched it this weekend. Based, based on the bestseller. Based book, on the bestseller. Also not read. I enjoyed it. It's a very fun rom com, and the men are dreamy. And I'm obsessed with Matthew Lopez, who directed it, and he wrote The Inheritance mm-hmm. because he's a brilliant writer, but he's also really cute, and I it's a lot to deal with. <laughs> uh, and I made the fatal mistake of starting to follow him on Instagram, so I don't know how that's going to go. But um, <laughs> I want to get your take on. Um, straight actors playing gay characters because I feel like Mm -hmm. I change my mind about it every day. Like I keep going, like one of the actors I heard interviewed from red, white and Royal blue, the guy that plays the British uh, character is straight. Mm -hmm. But after I watch the movie, I'm like, he's the guy, he's the guy you want in that movie. He looks like a British guy. He was all in on the kissing and the sex stuff. So I'm like, fine with it. Like, I don't know. I change my mind about it every day. I, the way that I think about it is that I, I do believe that actors can inhabit identities that they don't um, inhabit in real life or that they don't identify with or they don't. Um, I think it becomes a really a slippery slope when we said, well, like straight actors can't do gay, but then, you know, Mexican-Americans can play Colombians. But then like, where do we start drawing the line? To me, it's always been a labor issue. To me, it's always been if we're only given roles to straight actors, which means we're hampering the careers of, gay actors who would otherwise get those roles, um, then I think we should be making a point of trying to give gay actors a leg up. We should be trying to sort of um, privilege those and casting calls. But at a sort of like stylistic and aesthetic level, I've seen great performance given by straight actors playing gay in the same way that I've seen horrible performances by gay actors playing gay. So I, and and also playing straight. Um, So I think that to me, it's sort of, it's cultural specific. I think it's uh, uh, project specific. I think sometimes the characters just work well. The chemistry them between the actors is great. Um, also, as we saw with Heartstopper last year, like sometimes you can't know someone's right. identity. And sort of to begin to assume that if they haven't made any explicit, um, they haven't vocalized that they're part of the LGBTQ community, uh, then therefore they are straight and therefore they're queer baiting or therefore they are playing something that they shouldn't, be like that it, it gets such so thorny as soon as you start making sort of search such hard and fast rules so i it's the same way like sometimes i, I i'll watch a thing and i'm like oh this was perfect casting i don't care that they're straight uh and maybe that should be the litmus test is like look if it's a great performance i don't really care who's right. giving it yeah i think that's kind of where i'm landing but i find that i change every day like a few uh, months ago my roommate had on uh, grace and frankie and there was a scene with Sam Waterston and Martin Sheen, and they were a couple. And it just cracked me up because they were trying to be fussy. Like, I'm going to hold my book like this. And I was like, oh, <laughs> bless their hearts. Like, it felt like they were trying to be fussy gays. And it, it didn't, la- it, I was like, hmm, this isn't working for me. Well, um, and that's the, that's the kind of casting that feels stunty, right? It's like, yeah. what would it mean to see Sam Waterston, who we've known as this other kind of actor yeah. for like honor, like what would it mean to have him play gay? And that like that in itself feels, but I don't know, and Frankie. But <laughs> I relate to what you say about the labor issue. Cause I think that's right. Cause so many people didn't get a chance, might not get a chance. Um, and I think there was a period of time I've made some short films and I've worked with other filmmakers where 
subconsciously, I sometimes wondered if we liked those straight guys in our movies because deep down we think they're better, hotter, something. Mm. Um, but I don't think we're there anymore in that moment, at least. It depends, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, you kind of want the best person, I guess. The person that's like, and I think as a creator, I remember casting people, uh, and it was a gay character, and when they would walk in, you're like, I, don't, I just want them to be the guy. You don't really want to know that much about them. But the reason I gave one guy the role is that he said this one line in a very gay way that made me laugh out loud. And I was like, that's it. So I just think it's murky. But I do think that because there are more opportunities now than there used to be, it's not as hurtful. of It's not as thorn every time you see, you know, Colin Firth play a gay guy as much as it was maybe five or ten years ago. It feels like it changes every day. Um, Yeah, that's true. You mentioned Heartstopper. I don't love it. I watched the second... (laughs) My friend was into it. We watched it together, and then we watched the second season last night. I don't love it. I love that Kit guy. I think he's such a great actor that uh, the, both of them are. But I don't love it in my heart. I what is, so I watched. I haven't seen the second season, but I watched the first season, and it's because everyone that I knew talked about it and raved about it, and everyone who was my age was like, "Oh my god, I so wish I had this growing up." Everyone oh my god, said this that. is the kind of thing. And so I actually wrote a piece for Vulture about this very issue. And I called it like phantom nostalgia, right? Like that what it was capturing was the sense of this high school moment that a lot of us were robbed of and we didn't have. And I think Royal, Red, Royal, Red, White, and Royal Blue sort of, I've always, I haven't read it, but it it sort of functions in the same way. And I was like, oh, finally we get the rom-com that we never had. And we get to live in a world where we get to have these, even if it's cheesy and even if it's not like that great, like, we get to, why wouldn't we get this kind of right. rom-com or this kind of like uh, swoony, heartstopper, teen romance? Uh, so I've also eventually understood like, this is not really for me. And yeah. I think I'm not starved for that representation. Right. I'm not starved for living in that phantom nostalgia. I think also I've, I consume so much queer content right. from you know, Spain and France and Brazil and Colombia. And like, I'm always watching a lot of movies. So like Heartstopper doesn't feel novel in that sense. Yeah. Like I've seen, I've seen this film before. I've seen this kind of story before, but I do love that it's kind of, that it can be such a phenomenon and I can do that. And I can say that while also saying it's not for me. I don't really enjoy it, but all like all the better. Like I'm not going to stand in its way. I'm not going to become a naysayer. I don't really have the energy to fight people because I think it's, Really well done. Olivia Coleman does make me cry. Like that moment is lovely. Yeah. Um, and they got but, Coleman. That's a get. Yeah. Yeah. To pop in for a few lines here and there. And she's just, I, she's just, I'm going to show up and class up the joint. Um, yeah. But in a very humble way. I've read a few of the interviews with you and you talk about something that's related to this, which is that I think representation, representation is important and it's always nice to relate to the people you see on the screen. But I also think you can relate to people that aren't exactly like you. It, you don't, it doesn't have to be a demographic match to engage you. And I think a lot of the things that I love the most weren't like me or whatever, but I connected in some way. And you write about that in, or you talk about that in some of your interviews. And I, I think we should have as many stories as we can. But I think that just because there isn't somebody that looks and acts exactly like me in a story, I, should, I shouldn't just check out. I should give it a chance maybe. Yeah, I mean, to me, representation is such a... I mean, I talk about another thorny conversation. I know, right? We're, taking, we're not, digging deep. 
I'm not particularly invested in representation. I maybe I maybe I was, and I think a few years ago I would have had a very different take. But I think now I'm burnt out because I I also don't think representation is the answer. I think representation is the baseline, and I think repre- if if all you're looking for is representation, then all you're going to get are images, right? First of all, so you're not going to get cultural change. You're not going to get any kind of rights. You're not going to like representation can only get you so far. So if that's your only goal. Um, to me, that's, that's very like short term and it's very myopic and it's very like in, in, in the visual language, you're only looking for a mirror. And I never looked at pop culture as a mirror because I don't want to see myself reflected. I want to see, you know, I talk, I, I use this kind of metaphor in the book. I was like, I don't want a mirror. I want, um, a window or I want a lake that I can create ripples and sort of my reflection gets sort of murky as I'm looking at it. Or I want a disco ball, which is a kind of mirror, but it's a kind of like refraction or I want a prism. Like I want what I'm looking at to do something other than show me who I am. Um, and I think because as a queer kid, because you're sometimes not presented with images, you then sort of have to become the kind of critic and viewer that steals things and sees things from an angle and says, well, Maleficent is nothing like me. There is something alluring about her. And there is something that I see myself in them. So I've always found that those moments when I'm looking at something that's very much unlike me, that I find the most kinship. Um, and it's the kinds of, those are the kinds of moments that I, I'm constantly looking for. So I'm not going to sit here and be like, well, you know, there's never been a queer Colombian film critic who lives in Los Angeles uh, film and I'm not going to rest until we see it. Uh, Cause I don't think that's going to be that helpful or that exciting or that entertaining. Um, well, there's going to be one and it's going to be played by Channing Tatum. So congrats. <laughs> um, no, but I know what you mean. Like I like those sort of leaps where you connect things that you feel something, but you're not sure why it connects to you so deeply, but it does. Um, so you mentioned Maleficent. You, how big of a Disney kid were you? Because I came of age when the animated movies were sort of dormant. Like, it wasn't my thing. Um, right. Whereas I was a kid exactly. So I was 84. So when Little Mermaid came out. Yeah. And then, um, you know, Aladdin and um, Beauty and the Beast, Lion King. Like, those were the ones that were huge when I was growing up. So, like, I was part of that, like, Disney Renaissance kid. Um, my mom also has, she runs an animation production company. So I was always immersed in the world of animation. So Disney films always felt like events for a family just because she needed to see like what was being produced by like the preeminent Hollywood studio. Um, I would not, I was a big Disney kid. <laughs> I'm not a big Disney adult. <laughs> I'm not a big Disney adult either. Like I have friends that go to the park multiple times a year and I'm like, I'll I'll do once every four years, kind of like a presidential election. I I don't know, and I feel like I might be missing a gene or something. But um, yeah, it can sometimes feel like that. Like I I enjoy going to the park. Um, again, I don't think I would ever do it more than once a year. I think I was there earlier this year, but um, I don't I don't want to anger Disney gays. No, um, I, I I know I hear I hear you, but they were a touchstone for you growing up for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I revisit them and I watch them like Beauty and the Beast is probably the movie that I've seen the most in my entire lifetime. And I can recite it verbatim and I watch it and I could, I could do it right now yeah. without the film. <laughs> what Disney guy would you want to go on a date with? I'll go first. The brother in Big Hero 6, but I think he died. I don't even remember <laughs> his name, but he was hot, right? Uh, he's very hot. He's very hot. Thank you. And God rest um, his soul. I mean, 
Hercules is the first one that came to mind. Sure. Because I just love a big, dumb hunk. Yeah, you can't help it. I, <laughs> I, I can't just, help it. I, what happens to hunks when they get older? Um, I think they're fine. You think they're fine? I think they you might do okay. Th- I don't think they go crashing. I don't think they have some existential crash. Maybe they do. I, 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 that'd be interesting to think about because I imagine they would be the ones looking back and be like, oh, remember how young I was? But maybe they're the kinds of, I mean, this is also one of the things that I talk about in the book is like, when we look at someone like Hercules or Gaston or Triton that look like Tom of Finland sort of cartoons come to life, they were all designed by a gay animator that lived here in West Hollywood. Right on. Yeah, he knew what he was talking about. And he like, this is the kind of gay. So I sometimes think that like those hunks are the ones who are getting nipped and tucked and sort of trying to sort of, you know, they're um, working out at Muscle Beach and sort of continuing to sort yeah. of try to be as young uh, as they always and as beautiful as they always were. Well, I think it would probably be hard if something you traded on your whole life kind of was going away and you could feel yeah. it. I think that would be, maybe it is a panic-inducing thing. Um, I bet that animator would do like a week on cum gutters. I'm just going to spend a week on these cum gutters and we're going <laughs> to nail it. Um, see if you have a take on this. I forgot about it. I was just thinking about it when you mentioned Triton or whatever. Did you see the last Fast and the Furious movie? No. With Jason Momoa is doing this queer thing in it. And it's the best thing in the movie. And I don't know how it happened. He's got fingernail polish and he's kind of gay, but kind of playing with gender. And he's hilarious. And I don't know how it happened in a Fast and the Furious movie. But next time you're on an airplane and it's an option... Um, check it out. That seems out. like a perfect, perfect airplane movie. It's a, it's, it's, it's born for the airplane. Um, you talk about a person named Walter Mercado, who I think a lot of people discovered from a Netflix documentary. Can you talk a little about him and who he is and what it yes. was about him that made you want to write about him? Yeah. So Walter Mercado was this Puerto Rican astrologer. And so he had this segment on afternoon TV in Mexico and all these like Latin American channels uh, where he would, you know, talk about, you know, if you're a Libra, this is what's happening. And if you're a Capricorn, this is what's happening. And um, he, but he fill a whole hour or whatever, just doing that. Just doing it. And he did it in the, mo- like he has this outlandish sort of voice and persona. So he has this like blowout hair that he would, um, you know, come back and he was always wearing like sort of foundation and had giant rings and giant brooches and capes and they were bejeweled. And there was always this sense that he was sort of regal and sort of a kind of like a goddess. And he was really melding sort of masculinity and femininity. But again, this was in like daytime TV and like women and housewives and millions of people across the world, like tuned in and called his hotline and wanted to see him whenever he did like appearances and growing up, he was one of the first, I, I, I don't know if I would, I don't know if he would actually identify as queer or gay. Those were labels that he didn't particularly, um, use, but it seemed clear that there was something queer about him. Right. And I always, I always felt a kind of shame about it, like a sort of secondhand embarrassment. I was like, Oh my God, why would he be so feminine? Oh my God. Why is he so effeminate? Why is he wearing rings? Like, and obviously that was, that had more to do with my own sort of like internalized homophobia, internalized misogyny, internalized femphobia. Um, and so for the years and years and years, I just like wanted to sort of not have anything to do with him. You were afraid some of his gay was going to get on you. 
Yeah. Or that like, clearly I was identifying something about myself, but I just didn't want to like deal with it. And then in 2020, I saw the documentary, um, at Sundance and I, I know, and I interviewed the the filmmakers and I just, I, I had come back around, like enough years had passed that I could finally see him as this like queer icon, that what he was doing was so radical and what he was doing was so, it took so much guts to really say, fuck you to this machista society to say, I'm going to wear, and again, he would wear these like beautifully like Liberace style outfits uh, on daytime TV. And he didn't really care if people made fun of him and people did. And he didn't really care if people, um, you know, snickered. He just lived his life. Um, and so I wanted to sort of write a chapter about like me wrestling and sort of coming back around and sort of reassessing, um, both how I felt, but also the kind of place that he can now sort of occupy as a sort of like queer icon for my, and especially for Gen Z generation that have really taken him up and have really like, uh, repurposed him and sort of, uh, reclaimed him. Do you remember adults making fun of him around you? Would your parents oh, yeah. say like, oh, that guy or whatever. So that, yes. that kind of had an effect as well. It reminds yeah. me a little of Richard Simmons, although the presentation is totally different, but somebody who's super gay, super flamboyant, never talks about sex or sexuality or anything like that, but is sort of like on TV all the time in little yeah. dolphin shorts, um, which were a fetish of mine and still are, but not on him, but I was excited that they were there at all. Um, yeah, but it's that same sort of thing of like that guy. Wow. What, what's going on there? Is, is Walter Mercado still alive? No, so he died shortly after the documentary came out or shortly right. before, like around that time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and he had been out of the public eye for, for years before that. Um, because if you watch the documentary, like there was a lot of like, like legal issues around his name and around his estate. Um, but yeah, he was also the kind of person that it was made fun of a lot in, uh, sort of sketch shows. Yeah. Um, and sort of the kind of that he would be like, the butt of the joke and he would yeah. always be like, you know, isn't a feminist he funny? Ha ha. Yeah. And so it was hard not to internalize that and not to then like snicker alongside to be like, Oh yeah, yeah, that guy, that guy. The, the, yeah. But not, not me. No, no, I'm fine. <laughs> this is sort of unrelated, but sort of related. I just saw the Indigo girls documentary at Outfest and mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of the Indigo girls. And they do this section where they talk about being sort of the butt of the joke on a lot of these sketch shows and like how on Saturday night live, like they made fun of them and and you know, Cheryl Crow was the guest host, but they were making fun of the Indigo Girls and their lesbian earnestness and their flannel shirts or whatever. And <laughs> the girls were like, we would have come on and made fun of ourselves. Like it just mm-hmm. was kind of it just made them feel uncool. And and it's uh it's the the scene that I kind of one of the scenes I remember most from that movie. I loved it. Anyway, neither here nor there. Um Antonio Banderas. He's someone who yes. I don't mind if he plays gay till the day he dies. I'm all in on it. Oh. Right. Um, but you talk and, about discovering him through the uh, films of Almodovar. Yeah. So he, I mean, again, Almodovar is sort of like the, the filmmaker for me. Like he's someone who I, I've, I've loved for years and years. I've seen every single one of his movies. Um, and I, I was like, I can't write an entire book about masculinity and pop culture without talking about Almodovar. And I obviously can't do that without talking about Antonio. Cause I think their collaborations, have been so fruitful in trying to deconstruct this like macho, violent man who you nevertheless are so drawn to and so in love with and so in lust with. Um, and so I write about Law of Desire, uh, which is their 1987 film, um, where Antonio plays this like 
talented Mr. Ripley-esque character who like falls in love with a filmmaker and then there's a murder and then there's intrigue and there it's like very it's like a very weird movie but it's this idea of like what does it mean to have this beautiful man whose aggression is kind of alluring and seductive um and what does it mean that we're constantly being drawn to these men and what does it say about us and what does it say about society what does it say about spanish society in particular which is like reckoning and wrestling with you know the franco uh history and the regime um so I just find their collaborations so fascinating and, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, going back a little bit to the Walter Mercado conversation about how you felt like uncomfortable seeing him or whatever. I had a twinge of that this year watching the Tony Awards because there were a lot of gender non-binary people wearing mm-hmm. in dresses and, and, it felt like, I think my, for me, I was like, one is great, but there were too many. And I, <laughs> and I had to ask myself, wait, what's going on inside me? Like, what is mm. this about? Um, and it, but it was just that same sort of feeling of, I felt like some part of me was being exposed or something. Uh, like, I didn't trust it. There's too many. There's too many. And I, <laughs> I, I love those moments because I love those because I have those moments too. And I was like, oh, and like, what am I, oh, what, what is, what's that about? What is that about? And I think this is why, you know, the, the, the book goes from like Disney to wrestlers to Almodovar. But the final chapter, I always envisioned it as being about drag. Yeah. And I always envisioned it as sort of trying to move toward the future of what we would want masculinity to be and sort of exploding masculinity. And part of it is, is this idea of like gender fucked fashion and to like really uh, not think of labels and think of genderless and think of non-binary and thinking of all these different ways in which people around us in celebrity world, but also in our regular day-to-day life are refashioning quite literally what it means to be a man, what it means to be appear to be a man, what it means to be masculine, what it means to be feminine, how we're mixing them together. Um, but I have those moments too. of like, I, I'll sometimes wear a skirt and I'll have that moment of like, ah, is this, is this too much? Am I being too extra? Like, am I allowed? And then I'm like, I need to catch myself and be like, this is society telling you different things and these narratives that you should be, pushing aside and pushing right. away and do you really want to be on the side of the people who are making those arguments or would you rather be on the side of the people who are like or encourage you to go out in, in a skirt or with painted nails or with heels or with makeup or yeah and you felt like wearing a skirt can i also yeah. say uh someone who follows you on instagram your half shirt game is on point um are they crop tops <laughs> what do you call them back in the day we called them half shirts Half shirts. Yeah, I call them crop tops. I, I was just scrolling through my thing. I was like, oh, every single one of my like recent is always like a crop top. It's um, crop top summer. It's okay. It's, I love it. Yeah. I love it. I find them so sexy. And part of it is that they have that like sort of athletic kind of vibe. Yeah, right? it's from, a little like, sporty. Yeah. It's a little sporty. Um, also, as someone who gets sunburned a lot, I like something that covers my uh, shoulders, but okay. then allows me to breathe. Sure. Um, so I support that. I, I like them a lot. Now you talk about tidy whities in the Antonio Banderas chapter. What are those things that from pop culture that are like wardrobe things that are like, Oh, that just hooked me. Like for me, it was like disco clothes, angels, flight pants, polyester Ooh. shirts, um, 80s slutty running shorts, like nylon slutty running shorts. And I, I don't really love a thong. Yeah. I don't love a thong. I don't even love a bikini. I like a square cut. Uh huh. Um, but yeah, like I, it's weird how we just have what we like and we don't like. I don't know where yeah. it comes from. And I think, it, I mean, part of it is sort of 
our own predilections. I think like some people, you know, um, like tube socks. Yeah. And I think that's because they, they draw your attention to calves and to legs. And so that's what they're focused on. But some people really like, you know, short shorts or crop tops because they focus on the abs or they like, uh, racer back, you know, singlets because you can see arm muscles. So I think it has a lot to do with the kinds of parts of bodies that we're, we're drawn to. Right. Um, for me, tidy whities were, it's, and I sort of examine a bunch of different things like this throughout the book, which is like things that on the surface seem very mundane and are socially sanctioned and right. we see them everywhere. But there's a hint of eroticism that gay men really, really key into. Right. You so talk that, about that first Calvin Klein billboard that was right. so iconic and with the tidy whities. And yeah. it felt, it feels like Calvin Klein eroticism has been around forever, but it hasn't. Like th- that kind of um, male objectification wasn't around that much. And uh, there would be pictures of guys in underwear in magazines, but they weren't eroticized that way. They didn't have their head thrown back or whatever it was. Like it was a new thing. Um, but my favorite Calvin model, I think, Antonio Sabato Jr. Oh, I mean, fantastic. I mean, you can't go wrong. Um, <laughs> Marky Mark was solid, though, because he grabbed his junk. Um, right. As somebody who grew up loving Hollywood product. What was it like when you first came to Los Angeles? What do you remember about it? It was very recent. I came to LA, I think probably first time in 2015, I want to say. Right. It was, I also came in December, which I guess is sort of like the wrong time to come to LA. Or, I mean, I was living in New York, so I felt like, oh my God, it's going to be so warm, but then it's like 65 degrees, Mm -hmm. um, which felt really, really warm for a New Yorker, but also feels, now that I'm, now when we get to 65 here, I'm like, oh, I need my jacket. Um, I, I think the vastness of LA was something that I had read about, you know, as someone who's read like Joan Didion, uh, the vastness of the Los Angeles geography was the thing that most threw me off. Cause this is a city that sort of continues, right? Like there's a sort of like an endless horizon and there's an endless sort of sky because there's no clouds. And because you can always see the, the palm trees and sort of all of a sudden I was like, Oh, I can see why people would daydream about, some other things here, like why they would want to sort of always be itching for something else. Cause there's a vastness, the expansiveness of, uh, of the city. Um, but also the men, <laughs> I think like walking through West Hollywood that the first time I ever did, I was just like, Oh, Oh, no one was like, um, it wasn't hyperbole and it wasn't exaggeration of the kinds of men that you see or the kind of like beauty that just sort of, is like walking through. I always thought that they were like, dressing up West Hollywood or Los Angeles in the movies. And I was like, no, this is, this, this, it's, it's kind of upsetting. It's <laughs> a lot. Sense. You know where ground zero of that is for me? The Sunset Plaza where mm-hmm. uh, Crunch is. And in yes. the new Landmark theaters are there. It used to be uh, Lemley. I go, I used to go to Crunch all the time. So I, th- but the, it's kind of like going to like on a safari and they just like the gazelles are walking by and there's a giraffe. <laughs> And they're all in little shorts. And it's just like you can't believe the volume and the it's just a lot. It's almost like it's almost like some kind of exhibit or something. Um yeah. yeah. So so LA delivered for you on that front. They did. Yeah, it did. Yeah. It continues to, yeah. And continues to as well. Um, do you get back to Columbia very much? Uh not as often as my mom would like, but yes. Right. Um, I was there just a few months ago. Uh I try to go like once every year, year yeah. and a half for family because everyone's still there. 
Um, you wrote a previous book about Judy Garland, Judy at Carnegie Hall. Um, I did a deep dive on her for a podcast I was writing for Wondery. And my take on, it was kind of all about her whole life and a, a lot of research. And my take on it was like, in spite of all that she went through, that night at Carnegie Hall was like miraculous. It was, there was something divine about it. Yeah. That she could do what she did and give us that. Like, I, I, it was, I, I chose to sort of end the episode with that because it was just so, it felt like a miracle in a way, but also something that came from her. How, what's your yeah. take on that night or that show? Because I mean, there was multiple nights, as I recall. It was multiple nights and it's, it was an entire tour. And yeah. I think we tend to think of it as sort of this like one moment, but right. from what, from anything that I read, like she had done that same show and right. she had done, she had delivered that same show uh, in Washington a few weeks back and it like had done it all over the, all over the city. But people do say, and I think part of it was the audience. So like the audience that she got in Carnegie Hall, not just the celebrities, not just the Julie Andrews of the world who were there in awe of Garland, but that there was something that, it was just sort of like this gas, last gasp of greatness, as it would happen, as it would sort of turns out to be that it's sort of this sure. last greatness. Because after that, she doesn't really um, produce as much sort of um, great stuff. But yeah, what I the, the reason I wanted to write about it was because I wanted to write about queer fandom and about what the sort of that sort of kind of aggressive. Uh, almost evangelizing power of the queer fan who is so devoted to their saint. <laughs> and in this case, and I was they like, make them better than they are. Or they, yeah, in that moment, like, they bring out the best in them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, or only remember them in that sense. And I was like, there is no better pop culture object through which to think about queer fandom than Judy Garland, specifically the, Gar- the Carnegie Hall uh, concert and the recordings, which quite literally capture that audience and quite literally capture the adoration like those applause breaks like last minutes yeah. and they're there in the original recording and i was like and you could hear the, the sort of the love that they're giving her and so i find it fascinating and it is that um you know in doing my research there's a lot of talk about good garland fans and bad garland fans like good garland fans like are the ones who are like she's great and she's fantastic and the bad garland gays are the ones that are like no but she was also troubled and no but she was all these things like everyone feels really protective about the kind of garland that they want to uh nurture and i think carnegie hall gives them both because it gives them the like beautiful songstress who could build like no one else and also these like rambling anecdotes that are sort of like kind of crazy but it's so endearing you want it you want it she and she commanded the room in a way that i think like so few performers have and will well, and now we all sort of know gay men love their divas. But at the time, it was sort of, I don't think we sort of connected those dots quite so well. It was because yeah. of moments like that that we started to, I think. So it was like, oh, my gosh, what's happening? What I thought it was just me. It's all of us. And look at this. Yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of, again, when I was doing research for the book, like there's a lot of like contemporary articles precisely about that. Like in the 50s and then in the 60s and then in the 70s, there were there were constantly articles about like how Garland's fans and movie yeah. and why is she, so why is she related dudes. to gay men? Yeah. And it was all gay men and they were clearly like asking themselves like, why is this different? Why is this new? And it, it was constantly framed as like a new conversation. And so in a way, we've been having this like new-ish conversation for like decades and decades on end. Yeah. Um, going back to your book, The Male Gazed, how did it come about? How hard was it to to make happen? I know um, aspiring authors listen to this, and a lot of people are trying to do things like what you're doing. How did it come together? So the 
want to tell a story. So I went to grad school um, and I graduated in 2015 um, with a doctorate. Congrats, um, that's a big deal. What was your thesis big, on? My thesis was on queer fandom. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. All of, my, all of my work is very related. And I was very interested in sort of how um, the first generation of queer writers who grew up with the movies. So right. who grew up, who were the first ones who were like, actually impacted by what Hollywood could do. So Tennessee Williams, Gore Vidal, John Retchie, Manuel Puig, Kiss of the Spider-Woman, all that. That's sort of what my dissertation. And when I left academia, I was like, oh, maybe one day I'll write, you know, cultural criticism as like a, a career. And I always envisioned it as like having a writing job, staff writer job somewhere. And um, eight years in, we have not yet found that. So I continued to freelance. But when the pandemic hit, um, and all of my freelance sort of jobs dried up. I was like, well, this is a perfect time to sort of cook up a, a book proposal. I've been, I've been, I tried to do those, uh, years before and I could never get an agent. I can never get anyone to answer any emails. So I sat down and said, okay, if I were to write a book, what would it be about? And I, I wanted to write about the pop culture that shaped me. And I was like, well, there's no shape to that project. Uh, it, it, I, I need to sort of, I'm an academic. So I was like, I need a frame. I need an idea. And I was like, oh, masculinity and gayness and desire and sexuality and this idea of um, masculine images and what what am I doing? And so I, I sort of mapped it out and I wrote a proposal and it was very much a cultural criticism book. I just really wanted to write about these specific films, TV shows, very impersonal with a little bit of um, memoir or personal anecdotes. And I queried agents i had this like giant spreadsheet of all these agents that i was going to contact and i had all the like things ready and i sent it to three agents at the beginning and my number one pick like emailed me the day after and copped on the phone and he's based here in la so it worked out perfectly and we had we were very much in sync the other two passed (laughs) on 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 the project which was fine and he said this is great i think it needs some work and so we worked together for a few months making it a little bit more personal a little bit more memoiristic and then we sent it out to publishers and i got a lovely slew of rejections um that were all very nice they were like this is fantastic not for us oh we love manuel's work but not this or like it it was almost sadder and more annoying that everyone was very complimentary before right. saying no. Right. That's a very and, Hollywood thing. Yeah. And the moment when I, I called my agent on a Friday and I was like, okay, I think this is time to like kill this project. Let me start working on the next one. Let me start thinking about what I can do next. Uh, let's stop sending it to people. And literally that Monday he got a call from catapult with an editor who was interested. And she said the same thing. She was like, this is great. I think it needs a little bit of work. Uh, and the things that she suggested are the things that I would have done if we were going to send it out again. So it, we were like in sync. So it took a little bit of work, um, and to get it to the point where it's, it's here. And I give great credit to both my agent and my editor to really pushing me to be, have my writing be more accessible, have my writing be more personal to really find that connection with the reader. Um, to sort of really push, pull me away from academia in a really like great way. Um, so that we can make it readable, so we can make it so that uh, inviting to people, and yeah, and then I spent a couple months writing it and copy editing, and then and voila, here we are. And what voila. I love, you 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 did the work because sometimes you see a book published and you're like, I bet he knew somebody, right? Bet that you know, and you just like hit the ground and you did the thing and you persevered and it happened. And I'm I'm really, what has it meant for you in your life to have this out? It 
the fact that it, that it, the fact that it got published felt like a dream come true because in my mind I was always like, oh, this is like pandemic project and sort of pet project. And I one of the things that I was not ready for, or that I just didn't think of because I was kind of idiotic about it, was like what other people would read it. <laughs> which seems so weird because I was like, obviously you want a book and you want people to read it. But in my mind, I couldn't go that far. I was like, oh, I just need to publish it. And then it was only weeks into before it got published. I was like, oh, people are going to read it. And people yeah. are going to like think about it and write to me about it and want to discuss it. And that has been a joy an unexpected, but sort of weirdly expected joy. Um, and then people have really engaged with it and they really enjoyed it and have made them think of their own pivotal moments in pop culture consumption and all these ideas. Um, so it's, it's nice. I'm very old school and then like, I like a tangible object. Yeah. So for the longest time, for years and years, I've been writing online and I've been writing features and I'm writing reviews, but they live in the internet. Um, but this kind of like the Judy book or kind of like the Carver Kingdom series that I write for, like I can hold them in my hand and yeah. that alone feels very, very special. Cause like even, even when I'm gone, um, I think the book will, the book yeah. will still be here. And so that's, that's been a joy. I, I wrote a couple of books a number of years ago, but recently somebody sent me a picture of them reading it on a beach and it was like, oh, there it is. Like the, the physical thing, right? Have you gotten anything like that where they took it to Paris or something? I, so many beach pictures. You love <laughs> I think, it. Yes. I, well, part of it is, I think the, the, the cover lends yeah. itself very nicely to, so I've gotten a lot of pictures from like Fire Island, a lot of pictures from Provincetown, a lot of pictures from, uh, beaches here in Los Angeles and pools in Palm Springs, uh, which I love because yeah. I think, you know, this is a book about the male body right. and about the sort of night, uh, about inviting gazes. So I've gotten a lot of pictures from friends and from non-friends who, send me pictures of themselves reading in a Speedo. And I welcome them. Yeah, serve <laughs> it up. I'm all into it. You picked a couple questions from my observation deck. Um, yes. What's your favorite random celebrity sighting? Okay, so the reason I uh, picked this question was because a few years back when I lived in New York, I had, uh, you know, you run into celebrities all the time. And I started a Twitter thread back when we, back when it was still called Twitter, and I would catalog them. So every time I would run into someone, I would just write a little tweet about it. And so I, w- I was like, I had to go through this thread to be like, oh my God, who did I run into? But I, uh, running into Jonathan Groff at the subway was lovely because I'm obsessed with Spring Awakening. I love Awakening. him so much. I love Spring Awakening. He could spit on me as he sings anytime he wants. Yes. I would take every spittle. All the spittle I'll oh take. Oh my God, all of it. All of I, it. I love his whole thing. Yeah. Um, I ran into, uh, Billy Magnuson, another beautiful hunk, heartthrob himbo who yes. I love. Um, I remember running into America Ferrer at, in, at the airport on the day after the election in 2016. Oh shoot. She must've looked and downcast. We, and we both, we were both like exhausted and yeah. also sick of the world and also annoyed that we were like at an airport. Yeah. Um, and I have such, it's, it's such a vivid memory because she did look dejected as like, yeah. as if her namesake country had like failed her, which For it sure. had. And it yeah, did. It did. Um, but I, I loved, cause again, in my line of work, I do a lot of interviews and I do talk to filmmakers and actors a lot, but I enjoy these like random moments. I also, my other favorite random celebrity sighting 
is sitting a few rows behind Kristen Chenoweth at the Saved the Musical um, off-Broadway. Right on. And then telling my friend, I'm like, oh my God, did you see? And as I was telling them, like, oh, did you see? I bumped into something. And then I was like, it's Kristen Chenoweth. And then I realized that the person I had bumped into was Kristen Chenoweth. So she heard Um, you say that? I don't think so. All she heard was like my arm hitting her. Right. And then she fell. And She fell. She took a tumble. She took a tumble. I mean, I think she just like fell. Sure. Um, But it, it remains, it was the moment where I was like, I wish I could have said something. But of course... I was the person who like, yeah, but I love her. And I, if you're, if, yeah. if I ever see her again, I will share the story. Cause I, <laughs> it's still, it still pains me that I wasn't able to articulate. And even I, I'm, I'm sorry. Cause I was so. I love that star. moment in bros where she comes out with that crazy head piece. <laughs> Just amazing. Um, the other question you picked was who was your most impactful teacher? Yeah. So I, I picked uh, the, the the person that came to mind is their name's uh, Dr. Stephen Guybray, and he is a professor at the University of British Columbia, which I went to undergrad. And he was, um, I took a class got called gay literature, like queer literature, and he was the professor. And every single thing I think about in this book, when it comes to desire and sexuality, and close reading, and how you know, literature affects us and how we think about queerness, about men, uh, comes from his lectures. Um, cause he was so funny and quippy and bitchy and smart. And he was like the kind of gay man that I like, I wanted to grow up to be cause he was so smart. And, you know, my, one of my favorite lines that he ever said, it was like philosophy is for people who can't do poetry. Um, <laughs> that's interesting. What did he look I mean, like? He, who would play him in a movie? Who would play him in a movie? Um, I think someone like Colin Firth right now would play him in a movie. Interesting. I saw yeah. Mamma Mia the other night, totally unrelated. Colin Firth uh, was my favorite. Yeah, he's the, yeah. He, well, Dominic, but yes. Oh, yeah, Dom, I forgot about Dominic. He didn't have enough to do. Um, well, the Greek people in that movie, there are no Greek people on this island. Like, it's the craziest thing. It's almost like, it's weird. That movie is so uncorked. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. It was an outdoor thing. But you love this, this, this professor. Does he know about your book? Have you sent it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He's, I don't know if he's read it, but he's in the, he's in the acknowledgements and we, I follow him on social media and like we chat. Um, so he, he knows the impact that he's had on my, on my work and my thinking and just my life. I love it. All right. Um, I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, tell people how they can find your book. My book is sold wherever books are sold. So if you really have to give money to corporate America, you can get it on Amazon. But I would recommend you go to shopqueer.co, uh, which is this um, LA-based uh, queer-led uh, bookstore. And you can order stuff online from them. I love knowing about it. that. I didn't know about yeah. that. That's awesome. Yeah. And they have a rainbow bus that'll be soon sort of uh, taking queer literature all over the U.S., um, so you should really follow them. I, I love their work, but you can also find it at, um, Barnes and Noble at IndieBound. Um, yeah, I'm sure if you just Google, you can also listen to the audiobook, which I recorded. So if you have Audible, um, you can get it from there as well. How was that to do? It was long. Yeah. It takes a long time, right? That's what everyone <laughs> it, it, says. Yeah. It takes a long time. And, um, I realized that I use a lot of words that I don't know how to pronounce. <laughs> All right. That's eye opening. Um, I have two questions actually. Um, because you talked about running into celebrities. Have you ever run into any of the men that you sort of lusted after or 
wrote about or have you ever met any of the hunks or heartthrobs? Oh, I don't think so. I mean, Jonathan is someone that I've lusted after, but I haven't written about him. Yeah. Um, I keep waiting for the moment when I run into Ricky Martin. And then I always feel like I should have like a copy of my book with right. me at all times in case I, I still want to find a way to send it to him. Cause I was like, there's an entire chapter about you. I feel and like that's very his, flattering. His coming out was solid. I liked his coming out because he wasn't yeah. really promoting anything. And I liked that he didn't do that thing that some people do that bugs me particularly. It may be my quirk where they're like, well, everybody in my life always knew. It was just right. like that whole sort of like, no, this is, you know, come on. Uh, but I liked his coming out. It was, it was, um, I thought it was great. Uh, yeah. No notes, 10 points. <laughs> 10, 10. Um, what do you think of the divorce though? How do you feel about it? I am fascinated about this next uh, stage in Ricky's life. I am very much looking forward to it. Um, what if he goes wild? What if he goes wild? Uh, yes. Becomes I want like a him. circuit queen? Like, I mean, as man, this is uh, a little too much, but as someone who's going through a divorce or who's, got, who's just gotten divorced, I welcome any and all kind of lifestyle changes because I think it, it's, it, it'll be revealing and liberating for him. So I... I'm excited for him. <laughs> We're excited for him. We're excited. We're excited to see what comes next. So you've, you've written this book. You write for other outlets. Uh, you do reviews and interviews and things like this. My final question is this. Why do you do what you do? I don't know how to do much else. Um, <laughs> I, I, I mean, as, as a little kid, the thing that I loved doing the most was writing and thinking. I was that nerdy kid who enjoyed novels more when we talked about them and when we analyzed them than when I was reading them. So thinking about art has always been the thing that I enjoy doing the most. And that's how I went to grad school because I was like, well, this is the one place where I can do that. Um, and I truly enjoy it. And I truly, I'm still gobsmacked that I can do it as a career. Um, I, through sheer force of will, <laughs> nothing else. It's tough. Um, it's a rough road, freelance writing, any kind of writing, but any kind. Yeah. <clears throat> so, but yeah. Yeah, I would say like it's it's the thing that I love doing the most and the thing that I think I'm the best at. Um I don't know that I'm that great at a lot of other things. So Well you can rock a half shirt, you can rock a crop top. That's not nothing. (laughs) That's not nothing. Um the way you just said that reminds me of and just like that. Like I don't love to watch it, but I love to talk about it afterwards. Like it's that can sometimes be that can sometimes be as rewarding, if not more rewarding. Yeah, that's the whole thing. That's the whole thing. I hate watching something that I have nothing to say about. Yeah. How do you feel like about, because you do criticism as well. Mm-hmm. Have you ever ran into someone that you wrote negatively about? Oh, I must have. Yeah. But I, but because I'm a freelancer, I tend to, I tend to only write because I'm pitch, I'm pitching myself. Right. I tend to only write about things that I really enjoy or that I really feel strongly about. Um, so I'm not one of those people who's like was constantly uh although now that I'm on I'm on film week every other every couple of weeks with Larry Mantle on the Elliest. Uh, oh how fun. It is fun. But then I'm like, oh, this is what happens when you're constantly reviewing things, is you're constantly you you're watching eight right. films a week. So you constantly don't won't like all of them. Um and then they find themselves on Rotten Tomatoes. And I'm like, oh, did I say that? Because I feel like when we're talking about a film, like I'm like, oh yeah, I didn't really enjoy this. Blah, blah, blah. And it's something that I would never write because I'm right. very cognizant and I'm trying to be like, 
but then it'll see on Rotten Tomatoes like a, a rotten review. And Manuel said this on KPCC, and I was like, oh god, yeah. So, but I what I like what I say about that is that I also try whenever I'm writing, even when it's a pan, I like it to come from a place of construction and compassion. I never like to trash for the sake of trashing or or trying to criticize a piece for something that I think it should have been. Um, I think a lot of people, especially these days, write what I call producer reviews, which is, oh, I should have done this. So the book, the book should have done that. And I, you know, if I had directed it, this would have been better. And I'm like, I'm not a director and I'm not a writer. And in that sense, like I'm not a producer, like I can only work with what's there. Um, and so I'm much more interested in like, if it's a failure, why is it a failure? Why is it an interesting failure? Why is it an uninteresting failure? Um, and I think in that sense, I would hope that people reading it, um, even when it's a pan, they don't feel personally attacked. Yeah. So speaking of gay movies, I discovered Tubi this week. Do you have that, um, Mm -hmm. app? It's a treasure trove of gay stuff, old school gay stuff that I saw at Outfest like 10 years ago. Wanted to see again. I just watched that movie Paris 0559. Do you know that movie? Yes. Like the I first do, 20 I'm, minutes is like in a sex club and then they talk like it's before sunrise. It's I'm amazing. I'm writing about it. Um, what are you writing about it? It was so good. Ne- it, it's really good. The actors um, are really my, good. My next project, my next book project that I'm working on is about, um, it's called Hello Stranger. And it's about fleeting intimacies. And I have an entire chapter that I'm sort of still workshopping, which is about these like before sunrise type films like weekends sure. like paris uh end of the century because i i'm curious about these these kind of rom-coms that only focus on the sort of like the, the meet cute part like the beginning right the beginning of the film um and about what it is that we can learn about those fleeting intimacies and these fleeting moments of connection um that don't need to lead to this sort of like no. swooping romantic sort of and they lived happily ever after yeah I love it. Well, I'm glad I brought it up. I'm excited to read yeah. whatever that is. Thank you for this conversation. It was fo- so fun to talk to you. No and uh, good you. luck with everything you're up to. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Manuel Betancourt, my crop top hero and the author of The Male Gaze. Pick it up wherever you get your books. All right, so this happened. Uh, so th- today I went to Picket for the WGA strike. Um, I was part of a group called the Writer's Access Project in 2015. Um, It was a program through the Writers Guild where if you were already a guild member, which I was, um, but you were sort of mid-level and could use a bump or, you know, some some more exposure in your career, um, they had this great workshop that you had to apply to with a script. And so they were judged blindly. And if you got in, you got like six weeks of training once a week about how to be in a writer's room, how to pitch, how to be in a job interview, just like really valuable skills. And there were 11 of us in the in the group. And so this particular picket today was all people that had been through that program, my year and other years as well. And it was a big deal for me to be in that program. Uh, I felt really proud that my writing got me in and uh, I really tried to work it for all it was worth. And I loved the people in it and it was a big deal for me. So I was happy to go back and see if any of my, my group were there. And we had a handful of folks there. Um, Chuck Hayward was there. He was the only other comedy guy in my group. The rest were all drama writers. And Chuck has done so well. Um, he recently wrote the coming out episode on Ted Lasso, where the call-in comes out. And I just thought he did a beautiful job on that. And we got to catch up while we walked around in a circle, which let me tell you, it's hot. And I left there after two and a half hours. And I was like, 
That was hard. I came home and I was like collapsed. Um, I'm old. Anyway, Chuck had this cool project in development right before the strike that sounded like a gay black sex in the city. So I really hope it happens for him once things get up and rolling again. He's the best. And I had two other fun encounters um, at the at the march. It's not a march. It's a picket. It felt like a march. That's what it was like. Um, so there was this woman there that's also a writer named Aaron who was part of a more recent group of Writers Access Project people. And she was in the 2022 group. And I hosted a virtual game night for that group because they were all remote and it was a way of helping them bond. And I offered to do it and it was a blast. So I had all these writers that were in that group and I hosted it. And uh, we remembered that as we were chatting together. And she goes, I have a funny story to tell you. And I was like, okay. And she goes, when you were doing that virtual game with our group, I went into labor and <laughs> she stayed through the whole thing. She goes, it was my third kid, so I knew I didn't have to jump right off. But she stayed for the game. She was in labor during a virtual game night. And, and I do remember her saying, I have a hard out. You know, that's really a hard out if you're in labor. Um, so that was fun to hear. And um, the other story was I met a another writer who was in a later group. And he recognized my name and he knew my book, Misadventures in the 213, because he used to work at Brentano's in Century City, which is a bookstore. And he told me this really funny story that I treasure. I take it right into my heart. And I think you might get a kick out of as well. Uh, when the book came out, he was working at Paramount. And I think I had an office job, some kind of job at Paramount. Um, and there was a line in the book about how one of the characters says that Melissa Joan Hart is such a cock block. And in, in the context of the story, it makes sense. But he said he looked up after reading that line and who was there walking past him but Melissa Joan Hart. And I said, well, you know what? It was true then and it's true now. <laughs> She's a cock block. So anyway, isn't that funny that he remembered that line and that moment and that Melissa Joan Hart was actually right there in his face? Um, yeah. So that was my strike experience. I, I also got to see Glenn Mazzara, the showrunner who was one of the mentors of the Writers Access Project and has been such a great mentor to me and so many of the other writers. He's just the best. So it was great to see people and reconnect and fight the good fight. And let me tell you, the snacks were no joke. They brought these designer donuts from some fancy donut place. I don't think the Writers Guild bought them. I think it was some rich person. Um, but they were like fancy, like lingonberry donuts, just like and they were no joke. And then these great, like, tacos from home state, which I'm obsessed with. So anyway, it was a good thing. And I was happy about it. And it's important to always remember, I think, for all of us, that Melissa Joan Hart is indeed a cock block. All right, so that's all I have for this week. Thanks for listening. I want to give a shout-out to AJ Sousa for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Daniels for Placement Music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye! Bye!